You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. Let's open our time with a word of prayer. Our Father, we are grateful now for your word and for the time that we can spend in it. Thank you that you have given us a revelation of yourself and you have revealed to us all of your will and all of your truth that is necessary for life and for godliness. We pray that you'd give us understanding in these things and open our eyes and our hearts to your word and give us obedient hearts that long and love to obey you. We pray that you would be pleased to do this today through our time and through your grace. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, turn in your Bibles to the Gospel of John, chapter 5. Feels good to say that. Gospel of John, chapter 5. I've been looking forward to the Gospel of John, chapter 5, for quite a long time. Um, I actually look forward to every chapter that we study here on Sunday mornings. John, chapter 5, I've been looking forward to, and there, actually, now that I say that, there's a part of me that actually looks forward to John, chapter 6. And being done with John chapter 5, because I feel like every time we get to the end of a chapter, we sort of put a, a period there, an exclamation part there, and we can move on to something else. And I'm one of those people who likes to have little tasks, things that I accomplish. I get this done, and then I move on to this. And every day I sit down and I make a list of things that I need to do, and there's no feeling of satisfaction like the feeling of being able to check off something on the list. And I have all kinds of lists. I even have lists of my lists so John, the Gospel of John, is like a list of 21 chapters, and every time we finish one, I can check it off, and I feel like we've accomplished something, and we can move on to the next one. And you would think with that sort of obsessive, compulsive addiction to that feeling of accomplishing something that we would be going through the Gospel of John much faster than we are. But for some reason, it hasn't worked out that way. John chapter 5 is one of my four favorite chapters in the Gospel of John. Because John 5, chapter 5, contains some of the most mind-blowing, infinite, incredible, profound, I don't even know what other word I can put in there, truth and doctrine that we can possibly be exposed to. It is the Lord Jesus in the clearest, simplest, most in-your-face, straightforward way claiming equality with God the Father. And the doctrines that are covered in the Gospel of John chapter 5 are just out of this world incredible. And that is part of why I've been looking forward to chapter 5. My favorite chapters in John are 5 and chapter 6, chapter 10 and chapter 17. 5, 6, 10 and 17. Now I know that by the time we get to the end of the book of John, that might change a little bit. But as it is right now, I have to select those chapters which are really tasty, at least to my soul. And John chapter 5 has long been one of those. Ever since I was a brand new believer, John chapter 5 was one of my favorite chapters in all of the Bible and certainly in the Gospel of John. And I, know, I know what you're thinking, but what about John chapter 1? I mean, didn't we spend 62 weeks in the first 18 verses of John chapter 1 going through those mammoth doctrines? And yes, we did. And what about John chapter 3 with the doctrine of regeneration and the work of the Spirit of God? Wasn't wasn't that deep and profound? And it certainly was. And then you get into John chapter 13 and 14 and 15 and 16. And that upper room discourse. Wow, talk about good stuff. 
But I have to select my favorites, and so I'm going to stick with one of them being John chapter 5 for the time being. And I think you'll see why, as we kind of work our way through this this chapter, why this is so profound. I've told you in times past as we've been going through the Gospel of John, I tried to remind you from time to time that no detail in the Gospel of John is here by accident. Every detail, every miracle, every discourse, every event, every record of the travel of Jesus, everything that is said by Jesus or by anybody else, all of it is recorded with an agenda. Do you know that the Gospel writers had an agenda? Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John all had an agenda. Each of them was writing to convince us of something. You and I should never think that the Gospel writers sat down with a quill and a parchment of paper and said, I want to put down a few things about the Lord Jesus. Well, there was that time in Jerusalem and and then he said this, and I think we went to Galilee, and oh yeah, there was this miracle, and, and then Jesus said this, and it wasn't that way at all. They sat down to put together an argument, and every gospel is an argument. And we follow it, and this is why we preach through books from the beginning to the end. We're following the argument of John's gospel from chapter 1 all the way through to the end, and everything that he records, he records built upon what has come prior. So every chapter is like a, the next step in his argument. Every paragraph advances this picture that he's painting for us. And John is unfolding for us a theological picture of the Lord Jesus. He's giving to us a description, a big picture. He's painting something throughout this gospel. And every every addition of a detail and every discourse and every miracle adds an element to this picture that he's painting. So sometimes, like with any picture that you're painting, it it is beneficial to step back, as it were, and sort of take in the big picture and get an appreciation for what the artist is doing. Because if you spend all of your time up against the picture, painting the details, you sometimes miss the broad strokes, the big picture. So beginning chapter 5, because it is so significant, and because it's my favorite, today we're just going to take in chapter 5 in broad strokes. We're going to go through the whole of the chapter, as it were, before we dive into the details, just stepping back to see what is it that chapter 5 contributes to our understanding of who Jesus is. What is the big idea that John is driving at in this chapter, and how is it related to chapter 4? How is it related to all of its context? How do these few details in chapter 5 contribute to the big picture? That's what we're doing. So with John chapter 5 open in your lap, we're going to end up reading through the whole chapter, but we'll start with verse 1, which is always a good place to start when you're going to read through the whole chapter, but we're not very far into verse 1 before we notice something This sort of sends our mind reeling, as it were. Chapter 5, verse 1, After these things, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now that catches our attention for a reason. That catches our attention, and it should, because when we get done with chapter 4, where is Jesus? Is He in Judea and Jerusalem? Is He anywhere near Jerusalem? He's not. He's in Cana of Galilee. Do you remember that is in the north? Remember the little map in your mind with Judea in the south, Samaria in the middle? Galilee in the north. Well, chapter five or chapter four ends with Jesus in the north in Galilee. Chapter five begins with Jesus in Jerusalem in the south. Chapter six, look at chapter six, verse one. After these things, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee or Tiberias. Now he's back up in Galilee where Capernaum and Cana are. So chapters two and three are Jesus in Jerusalem. Chapter four, Jesus moving from the south to the north, stopping in Samaria with the woman at the well. He arrives in the north. Chapter 5, he's back in Judea, down in Jerusalem. Chapter 6, he's back up north at the Sea of Galilee. By the time we get to chapter 7, guess where Jesus is again? All the way down south back in Jerusalem. Now, the events of chapter 5 
are a little difficult to fit into a timeline of Jesus' life. I have on my shelf two what we call harmonies of the Gospels, which is where they take Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John and try and put them in a harmonious fashion. In other words, they kind of break it up and try and give you a timeline of this Gospel writer records this, but the other ones don't, and they sort of put it in a chronological order. So I bought a new one this last week, or a couple weeks ago. I had an old one sitting on my shelf, a kind of a real old, dusty-looking book. It was published back in 1947. My apologies to those of you who were born in 1947 or before. Didn't mean to call you old there, but I have a new one and an old one. This is basically what I was getting at, I guess. And both of them place the events of John chapter 5 in slightly different places in the life of the Lord Jesus. They don't agree on where this discourse and this miracle took place chronologically in Jesus' life. So I started looking into that, and I thought, well, why is this? And I spent quite a bit of time comparing the two and sort of trying to put it all together in my own head and reading the text and fitting it in and trying to fit it in. And it all boils down to some confusion about one little tiny detail in John chapter 5, verse 1, that John did not include. And if he had included it, all of the fog, the misunderstanding, and the confusion, the uncertainty would be gone. You know what that tiny detail is? Look at verse 1 again. After these things, there was a feast of the Jews. Here's the question. Which feast? That's it. Which feast? There were a number of feasts throughout the course of the Jewish calendar. Was it Pentecost? Was it Passover? Was it the Feast of Weeks? Was it the Feast of uh, Unleavened Bread? Was it the Feast of Purim? Which feast was it? If John had told us what feast he's talking about in John chapter 5, verse 1, if he had mentioned that little detail, then we would know exactly where this falls in the life of the Lord Jesus. But we don't. And so where you put this in your chronology of where Jesus went and, and the timing of it, is going to be determined by which feast you think John is talking about in chapter 5, verse 1. So that's the problem with chapter 5, is that we don't know exactly for certain when this happened. But though John 5 raises that problem, it offers a solution to a different problem. Now, are you ready for this? Setting aside the the Gospel of John entirely, if we just had Matthew, Mark, and Luke, we would only know of three Passovers in the life of Jesus. Three Passovers. Because Matthew, Mark, and Luke only mention three Passovers. Well, if you hold up three fingers, and you don't have to because I'm holding them up for you, you hold up three fingers, you have three Passovers. The first Passover is the beginning of Jesus' ministry, his public ministry. The second Passover would be sometime during that. And the third Passover would be the Passover at which he died. Well, those three Passovers only account for how many years in the life of Jesus? One. Two, right? Two years in the life of the Lord Jesus. But we've always been taught that there were three years in Jesus' public ministry. Where do we get the third year? Well, though Matthew, Mark, and Luke only record three Passovers, which accounts for two years, the problem with that is it is nearly impossible, and I would say nigh impossible, to fit all of the travels and the time and the events and everything else that's recorded in all four Gospels into a two-year period of time. So we are forced forced to account for a fourth fourth Passover in the life of the Lord Jesus, which would give us another year in his ministry. But Matthew, Mark, and Luke don't record it. In fact, no gospel writer mentions that fourth Passover unless, guess what? It's the one in John chapter 5, verse 1. So Matthew, Mark, and Luke mention three Passovers. I would fall into the camp of saying that John chapter 5, verse 1, I believe, is another either spring feast or Passover. Now, I wouldn't die for that. 
John mentions three other Passovers in his gospel. Chapter 2, verse 13, you remember after the turning of water into wine, he went up to Jerusalem because it was Passover, and that's when he cleansed the temple. That was the very first Passover. Then you'll notice chapter 6, verse 4, there's the mention of the second Passover, or maybe it's the third Passover, if the Passover, if it's a Passover in 5, verse 1, then this would not be a second, but the third one. But it's the second one that we absolutely know of. It's the second one, the one of which Matthew, Mark, and Luke all record. Chapter 6, verse 4. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was near. And then if you flip over to chapter 12, verse 1, there is the third Passover, which marks the beginning or the time of that final week in the life of the Lord Jesus. 12, verse 1 says, Jesus, therefore, six days before the Passover came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So John mentions, by name, three Passovers, the first, second, and the middle one, but we're forced to account for a fourth one. There were, if this was not a Passover, then it was one of, I believe, the three required pilgrimage feasts that every Jewish male was required to go up to Jerusalem to celebrate. And those three feasts were, number one, the Feast of the Passover, which is actually the Feast of Unleavened Bread. It didn't happen on the Passover, but following the Passover. The Passover happened uh, was celebrated on the uh, 14th day of the month of Nisan. The Feast of Unleavened Bread was that following week, the 15th through the 21st. But you'll notice in chapter 6, verse 4, that that feast is called the Feast of the Passover. Because the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which is what it was technically called, was often just called the Feast of the Passover, because it was celebrated with the Feast of the Passover. So that's the first of the three required feasts that every Jewish man had to go up to Jerusalem to celebrate. The second one was Pentecost, or also known as the Feast of Weeks. And the third one was the Feast of Tabernacles, which happened in the fall. Passover and Pentecost were springtime feasts. The Feast of Tabernacles was the fall-time feast, September, October, depending on how sort of the calendar fell. But it was in the fall. I land in the camp of saying, I think this is probably a springtime feast. Is it all that important, whether it was Pentecost or Passover or even Tabernacles? No, because chapter 5, verse 1 is the one verse in the New Testament that gives us that uh, mental hook, if you will, allows us to account for a whole other year in the life of Jesus, and then everything makes sense. Chapter 4, verse 1, when John the Baptist was arrested, chapter 4, verse 1, Jesus left Judea and went up into Galilee for a Galilean ministry that lasted about 16 months. In John chapter 5, we have the record of a pilgrimage that Jesus made from uh, Galilee down south to Judea to celebrate one of these required feasts, probably in the spring. There's no record of his disciples in John chapter 5, by the way. The disciples are not mentioned. Probably Jesus went down by himself to celebrate this feast in John chapter 5. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John do not mention the details in John 5. Only John does. And that detail in chapter one, uh, verse 1 of chapter 5 is the one verse in all the Gospels that allows us to add that year to the life of the Lord Jesus, and then everything begins to fit. Isn't it wonderful how God worked? Four books, and if we were without any one of the four Gospels, how, how deprived would our understanding... Not deprived. Yeah, deprived. I almost said depraved. Not depraved. How deprived would our understanding of Jesus' life be without John chapter 5? It's a wonderful detail. And that tells us a little bit about the timing of the events. Now let's talk about the events themselves. What does John chapter 5 include? Well, basically two things. A miracle and a discourse that follows the miracle. The miracle is in verses 1 through 9. Then there is actually a controversy that the miracle raises. So there's a miracle performed, and this gives rise to an issue. And it is a huge issue. It is the central issue in the life of the Lord Jesus. The central issue. The central issue actually of all human history. And that issue then is answered by Jesus in this very significant discourse. 
So we have a miracle, verses 1 to 9. We have a controversy that is raised, or the issue that comes out of that miracle, verses 10 through 18, 19. And then you'll notice the discourse, 19 through 47. And if your Bible has letters in red, then the discourse is really easy to pick out and to pick up because you see it's rather long. It looks like a lengthy section of text, does it not? See, that's a long discourse. Well, you're going to think that that's long until we get to chapter 13, 14, 15, 16, and 17. Then you're going to get an idea of what a long discourse is. So let's look, first of all, at the miracle itself. Let's start reading verse 1. We'll read through the miracle. After these things, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem by the sheep gate a pool, which is called in Hebrew Bethesda, having five porticos. And in these lay a multitude of those who were sick, blind, lame, and withered, waiting for the moving of the waters. For an angel of the Lord went down at certain seasons into the pool and stirred up the water. Whoever then first, after the stirring up of the water, stepped in, was made well from whatever disease with which he was afflicted. Now you may at this point say, Jim, hold on a second. I have a little note in my Bible, in my New Testament, down at the bottom that says most of verse 3 or the last part of verse 3 and all of verse 4 is not in some old, some older manuscripts. Some manuscripts in the New Testament do not contain these two verses. And what's going on with the angels stirring up the water and the people getting healed from the stirring up the water? We're going to deal with that next week. Verse 5. A man was there who had been ill for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been a long time in that condition, he said to him, Do you wish to be made well? The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no man to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. But while I am coming, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, Get up, pick up your pallet, and walk. Immediately the man became well and picked up his pallet and began to walk. Now that's the miracle. Now this miracle, you notice follows right on the heels of the miracle in chapter 4. This is the third miracle that John records in his gospel, the third miracle. The first one was the turning of water into wine, chapter 2. The second one was the healing of the nobleman's son at a distance, which we finished last week, chapter 4. And this is the third miracle, which is the, the healing of the lame man at the pool of Bethesda in Jerusalem. Now, they're recorded back to back, and there are some differences between the miracle in chapter 4 and the miracle in chapter 5. And whenever two things occur side by side in Scripture, I like to compare them. I like to get an idea of why the author put two things side by side in the text, because I think that John intends for us to make some comparisons and some contrasts, not only between the two miracles, but also the two groups of people. So let me offer to you a list of comparisons between the miracle in chapter 4 and the miracle in chapter 5 which is the nobleman, chapter 4, and the lame man or the crippled man, chapter 5. The nobleman came from a very wealthy background, a very wealthy class of society. Is that true of the man at the pool? Not at all. The man was poor. He wouldn't have been able to work because he was crippled. So he would have been dependent, like any crippled or paralyzed person, upon the gifts of people or the support of other people who would provide for his needs, provide for his sustenance, even provide for his transportation, to carry him wherever he needed to go on a daily basis. The nobleman in chapter 4 is very well-respected and honored and well-known. How about the man in chapter 5? Well-respected? No, he's despised. So despised, he can't even get anybody to push him into the pool when the water was stirred up. I don't even have anybody to dump me in the water when the water is stirred up. That's how neglected and despised he was. He didn't have anybody even near him who would over, to see to him enough or care enough about him to push him into the water. The nobleman boy was healed by somebody else's request. This man was healed. Actually, he didn't even request it, did it? Did he? You notice that? The man never even requested the healing. Jesus said, do you, mean to be made, do you want to be made well? 
Well, yeah, but there's nobody here to push me in the water. Maybe he was thinking Jesus would hang around and push him into the water when it got stirred up. He wasn't even requesting, didn't even request the miracle, but the nobleman did. The nobleman sought out Jesus. Did this man seek out Jesus? It's just the opposite. Jesus sought him out. He couldn't seek out Jesus. And kind of connected to that, the nobleman had some idea who Jesus was and what Jesus was able to do even before he met and came to Jesus. But the man by the pool of Bethesda, did he have any prior knowledge of Jesus? If he did, it doesn't seem to be indicated by the text. It doesn't even seem that he understood who this man was who was standing before him. If he had the type of knowledge of what Jesus was capable of doing like the nobleman did, he would have requested of him, Lord, make me well. Make me to walk. Do something or help me. But he doesn't do that. It seems like this man has absolutely no idea previously of who Jesus is. The nobleman believed the command of Jesus, but no belief is mentioned on behalf of this man. He's not, ha- he's not healed in response to his faith. He's not healed as a re- he's not asked to believe. He's not even saying that he did believe. Jesus just gave him the command to get up and walk. The nobleman's miracle happened in private. Who was it that was actually able to see the nobleman's miracle immediately? It wasn't even the nobleman. Certainly nobody in Cana. Only the people who were surrounding the bed of the boy who was healed in Capernaum. But this miracle in chapter 5 happens very publicly. In fact, it happens before the religious leaders and before the people, right down in the court of the city, as it were, at the pool of Bethesda, where everybody was at. People would have been passing through this all the time. So a very public miracle as opposed to a very private miracle. The nobleman was characterized by his faith. The man in chapter 4 characterized by his superstition. He's sitting by the pool. By the way, faith and superstition do not mix. You understand that, don't you? If you're a person of faith, you can't be superstitious. I like to say, I used to be superstitious, then I found out it was bad luck to be superstitious, and so I'm not superstitious anymore. Faith and superstition do not go hand in hand. They do not walk together. The nobleman was characterized by his faith. The man at the pool of Bethesda characterized by his superstition. There was a superstition associated with that pool. That's what he was banking in. He was banking on that superstitious belief. The nobleman had an illness healed, his son's illness. This man has a paralysis healed. The nobleman's son was afflicted by a rather recent illness. This man had an illness for 38 years. In the case of the nobleman, it was death that was averted with his son. In the case of the man at the pool of Bethesda, it was actually an ability which was restored, a productivity that was restored to his life. So in chapter 2, you have Jesus demonstrating his power ability over elements like uh, water and wine, creative elements, in, in, created elements, inanimate elements. In chapter 4, you have him demonstrating his ability to affect disease and death and to prevent those things even at a distance. And then when we get to chapter 4, we see his ability and power over paralysis and even a long-standing, long-lasting, organic paralysis that crippled a man. That's the miracle. Now, you would think that in Jerusalem, among all those who heard of this miracle, who saw this miracle, this verifiable healing of a man that was afflicted by an organic paralysis, something that was crippling him, that there would be joy and rejoicing and celebration on every front. That's what you would think. But chapter 5, verse 9, the end of verse 9, now it was the Sabbath on that day. Oh. And you can almost, if you know the Gospels, you can almost just feel it in your, your gut already, right? Seven days out of the week that Jesus could have chosen to heal this man. He chose the wrong day, at least the wrong day as far as some people were concerned. It was the perfect day, as you're about to see in a moment, but it was the wrong day as far as many people were concerned. It was the Sabbath. Could have done it on a Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, or Sunday. 
but he chose willingly and deliberately the Sabbath. Why the Sabbath? Why deliberately the Sabbath? Verse 11, verse 10. So the Jews were saying to the man who was cured, it's the Sabbath, and it's not permissible for you to carry your pallet. But he answered them, he who made me well was the one who said to me, pick up your pallet and walk. They asked him, who is the man who said to you, pick up your pallet and walk? But the man who was healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had slipped away while there was a crowd in that place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, Behold, you've become well. Do not sin anymore so that nothing worse happens to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had made him well. For this reason, the Jews were persecuting Jesus because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. That's the first offense. Jesus had done this on the Sabbath. Now, was it a violation of the Sabbath for Jesus to do this? No, it was not. Not at all. But Jesus did it on the Sabbath. That was objection number one. Now, if Jesus had just let sort of sleeping dogs lie or dead dogs lie or however that saying goes, all probably could have been avoided as far as controversy goes. But he says in verse 17, My father is working until now, and I myself am working. Now, if you think verse 9 was offensive, that he did this on the Sabbath, friends, when we unpack that verse, verse 17, that is a stunning declaration of his own deity. Verse 18, for this reason, therefore, the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because he was, now these are the two, are two objections, because he was not only breaking the Sabbath, at least as far as they were concerned, he was breaking the Sabbath, but he was also calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Now that's the controversy. Jesus had done two things that deeply offended the religious leaders. He had healed a man on the Sabbath, fault number one. Charge number two, he claimed that God was his own father, therefore making himself equal with God. Now the Jews want to kill him because he's done two things. Violated the Sabbath, at least as far as they're concerned, and he has called God his own father, making himself equal with God. That's the controversy. And by the way, that's the central controversy. Is Jesus God or not? If he is not, he is a liar, because of verse 18. They understood exactly what he was claiming. That is what he was claiming. And that's why they wanted to kill him. So now we come to the discourse, which is an answer to the issue which was raised by the miracle. So the miracle raises the issue. The issue is answered by the discourse. Now as we go through this, keep this in mind. The discourse and the miracle are intimately connected. They cannot be separated. All of the red letters of John chapter 5 come out of the mouth of the Lord Jesus because of the miracle that he did and the issue that was raised by the miracle with the religious leaders. So now we come to the discourse. Now before we read the discourse... I want to give you a list of some of the subjects that you're going to hear raised. And I want you to just, as we read, to be listening for these. This is the marvelous part of John chapter 5 and the doctrine that is in here. So listen to these subjects. These are the doctrines, the theologies, that we're going to get to unpack over the course of the next several weeks. The role of the Father. The role of the Son. The relationship between the Father and the Son in the Trinity. The coming judgment the Son's role in that judgment as judge, the reason and ground for that judgment, why is it that God judges men, the equality that is shared between the Father and the Son, the nature of the life of God, and thus the nature of the life of the Son, what it means to honor the Father and what it means to honor the Son, and how is it that we honor the Father and honor the Son. Eternal life and eternal death, the resurrection of the just, and the resurrection of the unjust. Oh, 
John chapter 5 is my favorite, one of my favorite chapters in the Gospel of John. That passage on the resurrection of the just and the unjust, one of my favorite passages in chapter 5. I can't wait to get to that. But of course, I can't wait to get to chapter 6. You already know that, right? The authority of the Son, the doctrine and identity of the Son of Man, the judgment of the Son, the will of the Father as done by the Son, some teaching on John the Baptist, the point of the miracles that Jesus performed, the witness of the Father to the Son, the witness of the Old Testament to the Son, the witness of Moses to the Son, and the necessity of belief for eternal life. Now, some of those we've already covered in the Gospel of John, like eternal life, eternal death, the nature of resurrection, belief, regeneration, and those things, they come up again in John chapter 5. Now, listen to those for those things as we read through this discourse, beginning in verse 19. Therefore, Jesus answered and was saying to them. Now, the therefore is there for a reason, right? Why is it? Because he is answering what? Their desire to kill him because he broke the Sabbath and called God his Father, making himself equal with God. They understood him claiming equality with God. Now, if Jesus was not claiming equality with God and they were wrong, you would expect Jesus to say, whoa, 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 hold on. You misunderstood what I was saying. Let me correct it. But Jesus doesn't do that. Verse 19. Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of himself unless it is something he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, these things the Son also does in like manner. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all things that he himself is doing. And the Father will show him greater works than these so that you will marvel. For just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the Son also gives life to whom he wishes. For not even the Father judges anyone, but he has given all judgment to the Son, so that all will honor the Father, or the Son, even as they honor the Father. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes him who has sent me has eternal life and does not come into judgment, but has passed out of death into life. Truly, truly, I say to you that an hour is coming and now is when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. For just as the Father has life in himself, even so he gave to the Son also to have life in himself. And he gave him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming in which all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and will come forth, those who did the good deeds to a resurrection of life, those who committed the evil deeds to a resurrection of judgment. I can do nothing of my own initiative. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just because I do not seek my own will, but the will of him who sent me. If I alone testify about myself, my testimony is not true. There is another who testifies of me, and I know that the testimony which he gives about me is true. You've sent to John. He's talking about John the Baptist. You've sent to John, and he has testified to the truth. But the testimony which I receive is not from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved. He was the lamp that was burning and was shining, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. But the testimony which I have is greater than the testimony of John. For the works which the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I do, these testify about me, that the Father has sent me. And the Father who sent me, he has testified of me. You've neither heard his voice at any time nor seen his form. You do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe him whom he sent. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is these that testify about me. And you are, not un you are unwilling to come to me so that you may have life. I do not receive glory from men, but I know that you do not have the love of God in yourselves. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you'll receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that's from the one and only God? Do not think that I will accuse you before the Father. 
The one who accuses you is Moses in whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? Now that discourse offers us a contrast between the people being addressed in John chapter 5 and the people that we read about in John chapter 4. In John chapter 4, we were exposed to two groups of people. Those who believed without a sign. The woman at the well didn't see a sign. She believed Jesus and was saved. The Samaritans, without any signs, believed his word and were saved. The, the man from Capernaum, Galilee, without any sign, without evidence of a sign, he believed Jesus and he was saved in his whole household. There are those who believed without any signs and wonders. Then there was a second group in John chapter 4. It was those who believed because of the signs that they saw when Jesus was in Jerusalem. Those were the rest of the Galileans, as it were. Now where is the third group in John chapter 5? There were those who believed without a sign. There were those who believed because of the signs. And there were those who did not believe even in spite of the signs. That is the worst unbelief. The worst unbelief. They had a verifiable miracle done in their presence. And these religious leaders sought to kill this man rather than to listen to the words of his mouth and believe the signs. In Samaria, all they had was his word, and they believed it. The Galileans had his word and the miracles, and they did not believe savingly. But then there are those who did not believe and refused to believe and sought to kill him, even in spite of the signs. That is the most horrific of unbelief. The most horrific. And that's the contrast that you and I are intended to make between chapter 4 and chapter 5. Now, there are themes in chapter 5 that are connected to chapter 4, and we've talked about these recently, so let me point them out. Maybe you noticed them as we went through. John chapter 5, verse 24 says, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and does not come into judgment, but is passed out of death into life. Do you notice anything in verse 24 that sort of sounds familiar? I say to you, he who hears my word and believes... What did we talk about last week? Taking Jesus at his bare word. His word is enough. I need no signs. I need no miracles. And here's Jesus on the heels of performing a miracle saying, he who hears my word and believes, it is enough. It is enough. You have heard my words, seen the miracle, and not believed. So here this theme of believing the word of Jesus carries into this discourse in chapter 5. But now he's addressing a different audience. See, in chapter 4, it was the uh, Samaritans and Galileans. Now in chapter 5, it's down in Judea in the south in Jerusalem with the Pharisees and the Jews and the religious leaders. So it's a different audience. Same sort of subject matter, but a different audience. Look at verse 38. You have not his word abiding in you, for you do not believe him whom you have sent. Here's the subject of belief. Verse 44. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that's from the one and only God? Do not think that I accuse you before the Father, the one who accuses you of Moses whom you've set your hope. If you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. But if you will not believe his writings, how will you, what? Believe my word. It's the same theme as in chapter 4. Now to a different audience. A different audience that disbelieved in spite of the signs, Jesus lays it out again. It is my word. It's not the signs. It's my word. You must take me at my word, and you must believe me in spite of all of the evidence. And they had seen plenty of evidence. So that's the connection with chapter 4. Now, I said earlier, there is a connection, an inseparable one, between the miracle and the discourse. What is that connection between the miracle and the discourse? These two, the miracle at the beginning of chapter 5 and the discourse which finishes out chapter 5, 
are intimately connected in this way. The discourse is Jesus' explanation of the miracle. It is him expounding and explaining the implications and what the meaning of the miracle is. The miracle is that discourse basically played out. So the discourse is the miracle explained. The miracle is the discourse done. Alfred Edersheim in his book, The Life and Times of Jesus the Messiah, says the discourse is the miracle preached. You take that miracle at the beginning of it, and you preach that miracle, the meaning of that miracle, and you're going to get John chapter 5, verses 19 through 47. And conversely, Edersheim says, the miracle is the discourse done. You take the teachings of that miracle, and you put it into flesh and blood, and demonstrate the lessons of that miracle, the lessons of that discourse, what do you get? You get the miracle at the beginning of the chapter there, and this is all one unit, and this is the central issue. This is the central issue. And and uh, the, the discourse of chapter 5 is also connected to the miracle in this way. You see it at the end of verse uh, the chapter 5, verses 44 through 47. I'm not, not going to read it again. But in there, Jesus mentions the one who gave them the law, which contained the Sabbath. Remember the issues of the Sabbath. He healed on the Sabbath, and he claimed equality with God. So since Jesus healed on the Sabbath, and that was what just got caught right there. They couldn't, they couldn't all tolerate that. Since the issue is the Sabbath, then it raises this question. Who was the man who gave them the ordinance of the Sabbath in the law? I mean, other than God, who was the one? Who was the lawgiver, the great lawgiver of Israel? Moses. Moses in whom they had put their trust. Now, what is Jesus driving at? Who had given them the Sabbath? Moses had given them the Sabbath. And here's what Jesus was saying. You do not believe Moses. You say you believe Moses, but you don't. You do not believe Moses and understand the role of the Sabbath. They had corrupted and perverted the Sabbath. They had taken the Sabbath, which should have been a cause of rest and rejoicing and celebration and ease from the burden, and they had made the Sabbath a burden. And the fact that they had so turned the Sabbath on its head was evidence that they didn't believe Moses. They didn't accept Moses at face value. So the Sabbath, rather than being a burden, should have been a joy. It was the release of a burden. It was the lifting of the burden for one day. I have one day when I don't have to have this burden. But they had taken it, turned it on its head. And now the Sabbath celebration was a burden. All of the laws and the traditions and the things attached to it, the things that I can't do and the things that I have to do and the things that men and their traditions had heaped upon it had made the Sabbath a burden. Now Jesus comes along and he lifts a man's burden on what day of the week? The Sabbath. And what is one of the lessons of this miracle? The one who came and healed this man on the Sabbath is the very one who came to lift the burden. But these men didn't want their burden lifted. What better day to lift a burden than on the Sabbath? But these men wanted the Sabbath to be a burden. They were content with their burden of sin. They were content with the burden of the law. They were content with the burden of their Sabbath. They weren't interested in having the one come who came to lift the burden actually lift the burden. So Jesus, in the lesson of the pool, man at the pool of Bethesda is, he came to alleviate the burden. He did it on the Sabbath, which should have been a joy of lift, a day of lifting the burden rather than a day of burden. And these men wanted not only themselves, but everybody else under the burden. And they hated the one who came to lift the burden. That is why the whole thing sort of climaxes in verses 44 through 47, where Jesus says, if you believed Moses, that is, if you understood the Sabbath and you believed him, this would not be a controversy. And if they had understood the Sabbath and if they had rightly practiced the Sabbath and if they had worshipped on the Sabbath, if they were Sabbath keepers themselves, 
There would have been no controversy to settle at all because they wouldn't have had a problem with Jesus doing on the Sabbath what he did. One last thing I want you to notice here in John chapter 5. If our chronology is correct, and John chapter 5 is one of these springtime feasts early in Jesus' life, which would have been uh, his second Passover celebration, so he would have been in ministry for one year. If our understanding of that is correct, which I'm not going to go to the wall for that, but if that is correct, then you have here in John chapter 5 two things. Number one, you have Jesus very early in his life and ministry clearly laying out his messianic claims and his claim to deity very early in his ministry. Secondly, you have here evidence that the Jewish religious leaders hated him, understood his claims, and were plotting his death only one year into his public ministry. Two full years before he actually died, they were already intending to crucify and kill him. So when we get to John chapter 5, verse 18, that is one of the most foreboding verses in all of the Gospel of John. Because back in chapter 1, we heard that those who came into his own and his own rejected him, did not receive him. And we've already read about unbelief all the way through the Gospel of John up until now. But when you get to chapter 5, verse 18, they're seeking to kill him. Suddenly you realize that John has just put us onto a path that is going to end at Calvary. Because early in his ministry, he claimed deity, and they wanted to kill him. And now for the rest of the Gospel of John, this sets the tone, for the rest of the Gospel of John, he is going to continue to claim deity, and they are going to continue to try and kill him all the way through every Passover until they finally kill him at his fourth Passover at the end of his life. That's John chapter 5 in a nutshell. Now you realize, of course, as you're sitting there, Jim, you could do that for every chapter and we'd be done with this book in 15 weeks. But what would be the fun in that, right? Let's pray. Our Father, we do thank you for such a marvelous revelation. It all ties together and holds together so well. Its truth is there for us to see and love and appreciate. We thank you for our Savior who was God, who claimed to be God, and who died as God on our behalf to atone for our sins. We thank you for this in his name, in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.